Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community practicing the way of Jesus and thirsting for the life he gives. Good morning, everyone. Happy last week of January. I am so looking forward to this morning's conversation uh, together about, um, uh, as we continue in um, the sermon series that we're doing on Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. Um, I'm really excited because we're going to look at a passage today that talks about something we don't talk about a lot. It's a, a topic that's surrounded by a lot of mystery, and the topic is the Lord's return. This is not an easy passage that we're going to be looking at, and we need to be careful to read it very carefully. We need to be careful because we don't want to misread it, right? Misreadings of this passage and other similar passages um, have caused a lot of harm in the past, you know what I'm talking about if you're someone who maybe as a kid you heard a sermon or you read the Left Behind series or you saw a Left Behind movie and maybe you woke up in the middle of the night and the house was quiet and you were like, oh, could everyone in my family have been raptured and could I be one of the unlucky ones? Has anyone ever had that kind of, can you relate? Um, so that's, that's why we need to read this passage really carefully. And we're going to do that. We're going to read this passage really carefully by using four basic tools, interpretive tools. Now, there are many more interpretive tools we could draw from, but we're going to look at four basic interpretive tools. And these tools will serve a little bit like guardrails so that we don't run off the road in interpreting the passage. They'll also serve, some of them will serve like street lamps that will sort of shed some light on the road ahead, right? It won't shed light necessarily on the destination, but it will help us to see where we're going a little bit better. And just as a spoiler, we are not going to leave today. You are not going to leave today with every question that you have about the end times answered. Okay, so sorry to disappoint you. But hopefully, we will all leave to, uh, today with a better understanding of, of, of what Paul's intention was in writing this, this passage that we're going to look at. And we're going to hopefully be able to put to rest any false narratives that have been taking up real estate in our brains for too long. And we'll also hopefully all leave with a few tools that can be useful in approaching other difficult or confusing passages. Sound good? Good. So here's the plan. We're going to start by looking at the first tool in our hermeneutical toolbox. Then we're going to read the passage. Then we're going to see what the other three tools can um, help us discover in this passage one by one. And the first tool that we're going to look at is... Genre, literary genre. So whenever we read scripture, it's really helpful to identify what is the genre of the literature that we're reading, uh, because every genre has its own rules, conventions, and voice, right? We want to be careful not to misread one genre in terms of the rules and conventions and voice of another genre. Now, here's what I mean by misreading genre. If you're going to take a trip to India, you probably wouldn't pick up Rudyard Kipling's novel, The Jungle Book, and read it as a travel guide, right? Even though Rudyard Kipling grew up in India, he spent part of his adulthood in India, he knew what he was talking about when he wrote this book. He wove in lots of realities about India because he, you know, he spent time there, but he didn't write it as a travel guide. He wrote it as a novel. So we need to be careful uh, to read it as a novel and not as a travel guide. If we read the Jungle Book, as a travel guide to India, we will get ourselves in a little trouble. 
The Bible was not written in one single genre. It's a collection of 66 different books with many different genres represented, right? We have history. We have those books that are really dedicated to recording the history of the nation of Israel. There's poetry. There's proverbs and wisdom literature. Uh, There's lots of parables in scripture, right? There's prophecy. Those are just a few of the genres. Well, the genre of the passage that we're looking at today, the genre of First and Second Thessalonians is, anybody? What, what kind of writing is it? It's a, I heard someone say epistle. Any, any other words for that? A letter, right? This is a letter, right? This is a, epistle is actually the old English word for letter. So sometimes you hear these, uh, these books of scripture referred to as the epistles, right? Um, but it's, it's, it's a letter. It's written correspondence. And just like any letter, this letter is written to a particular readership. In this case, a group, a church, right? In a particular place, in a particular time, and addressing very particular issues and questions that they had. And so we need to be aware of that, of the genre that we're looking at here, because we could easily be tempted to read this passage as if it were written to us, to answer our questions. Or worse, we could read it as if it were a textbook on the end times, or a handbook on the Lord's coming, right? but it is not a handbook on the Lord's coming. That said, we can still glean a great deal from this letter, which is why we're going to take time right, with it this morning. We just need to be reading it for what it is rather than for what it isn't. So considering the genre here, um, it's kind of like putting up a guardrail so that we don't run off the road. So what specific questions is Paul addressing in, in the, the passage we're about to read? Well, the believers in Thessalonica had a very strong faith in Jesus, Uh, and they believed that Jesus was going to return imminently. That means any day, right? And definitely in their lifetimes, definitely in their lifetimes. So some people had even apparently quit their jobs. That's how palpable the anticipation of Jesus's return was. But time was passing, And it kept passing. And some of the believers apparently had died. And so were those who had departed, those who had died, were they going to miss out on the glorious return of Christ and all of the benefits of Christ's return to, to the believers? That was a concern that the Christians in Thessalonica had because they weren't even thinking about this as a scenario, like people die before Christ comes back. That wasn't part of their, um, their scenario, right? So for, some, so for this reason, the Thessalonians, they had a real fear uh, of this happening, that, that, that those who had departed were not going to um, experience the day of Christ's return. They weren't ex- going to experience the benefits that it would bring. So I'm going to invite Sarah Jane up, and she's going to read the passage. And as Sarah Jane reads, I want to invite you to notice the gentleness with which Paul confronts uh, the false assumptions of the church of Thessalonica. Make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands, just as we instructed you before. Then people who are not believers will respect the way you live, and you will not need to depend on others. And now, dear brothers and sisters, we want you to know that what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, 
We also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the believers who have died will rise from their graves. Then, together with them, we who are still alive and remain on earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. This is the Lord of the This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Sarah. Okay, but wait. What will our bodies actually be like when they're transformed? Uh, Am I going to have this little scar here, this birthmark here? Um, Am I going to be reunited immediately with um, my loved ones departed? Uh, What about judgment? Where does judgment fit into that verse, that scenario? I mean, isn't there like a a judgment? Isn't that part of the equation? Um, what, What happens next? What does forever look like? We want to understand all these things, don't we? We want Paul to explain them and Silas and Timothy who wrote this letter. We want them to explain them clearly and fully, but they don't explain these things clearly and fully because this is not a handbook on the Lord's return. This is a letter that's being written to a church uh, to address some very real concerns and some very specific questions. And understanding that this is a letter written to address specific questions can help us not to pressure this passage into answering all of our 21st century questions about the Lord's return, right? When we pressure any given passage to try to do what it's not trying to do, that's one of the ways we end up with dangerous false narratives based on bad theology. So let's move on to our next tool. Let's talk about related scripture. Related scripture. When we read a difficult or confusing passage of scripture, it's good to ask ourselves, what do other scriptures say about this? And even more importantly, I think this question, how does this scripture passage fit into the larger arc of scripture, the larger narrative of the Bible? You see, any given passage of Scripture can lead us in a direction that it's not actually meant to if we read it in isolation. It's kind of like looking at a painting, right? If you step up really close to a painting, you can become quite fascinated with the technique of the artist, right? You can notice the brush strokes, the individual brush strokes. And it's really helpful when you pay attention to maybe those brush strokes and maybe you focus on one of those brush strokes. But if you never step back, you can lose sight of the larger picture, right? And so today's passage is really just a single brush stroke in a much larger painting. So let's see if we can situate this brushstroke in that larger painting, or at least begin to. So a major theme that we read about in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is the new heavens and the new earth. In the book of Isaiah, we read, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered. And then in the New Testament, Paul writes about this in in Romans. He says, He speaks of a time when creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. 
And then in the book of Revelation, you can read about John's vision of the new heavens and the new earth in chapter 21. So throughout the scripture, we see this imagery, this pattern of images uh, and language about a new heavens and a new earth. Well, why is that important to our passage? Because our passage doesn't talk about a new heavens and a new earth. Well, it's important because when uh, Paul's description of the Lord's return, uh, he, he, he gives us something very striking, doesn't he? He says that people, as they're being raised from the dead, as those who are alive are being transformed in their bodies, what happens? They meet the Lord in the air. Wow, that's amazing. I, I'm picturing this massive party in the clouds. I'm looking forward to it. But what does it mean, right? What does it mean that we meet the Lord in the air? Does that mean that when we die or when Jesus comes, we're going to be hanging out with God in the clouds for eternity? Kind of sounds like that on first uh, listen, doesn't it? On first read. But how does that square with the promise of a new heavens and a new earth? Hmm. We don't have the answer to that yet, do we? But we're seeing that there's a bigger picture. There's a bigger painting and so let's hold that tension between the brushstroke and the painting while we move on to the next tool. And maybe that will help us to reconcile the difference. So the third um, tool that I want us to look at is original language. Now, we are removed from Scripture by time, right? It's written many years ago by culture, different culture different cultures, right? We're also removed by language, right? The scriptures were written in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, different languages than I presume most of us speak, right? Uh, but we don't have to be Greek or Hebrew scholars to uncover the meaning of a given word in scripture because, um, well, we can turn to a commentary. Scholars have done a lot of work for us. Um, I do want to say language is so important because it's like a receptacle of culture. It holds so many clues when we unpack even a single word sometimes. Um, I know this is going to sound incredibly nerdy, but I want to give a short plug here. If you've never spent time reading a biblical commentary before, it can actually be not only quite enlightening, but also quite edifying. There's a time when I was going through a season of suffering. It was a pretty long season of suffering. And when I realized I was like not getting out of this season of suffering the next day, like, of course, I, you know, God, deliver me tomorrow. This is not happening tomorrow. I felt like God was nudging me, like, while you're in this season of suffering, he nut, like a holy nudge to read the book of Job. Now, I had, I'm not proud to say, this is a number of years ago, but I'm not proud to say, you know, I, I've been a Christian many years. I had never read the book of Job. I had read the beginning. I'd read the end. A few bits and pieces in the middle. I had never read the whole book beginning to end. And I think there's two reasons why. One is that it seemed like it would be depressing. It's a book about suffering. I didn't really want to read a depressing book. But to be honest, I think the main reason I was avoiding the book of Job is because I felt intimidated by it. I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to understand it. Well, I was able to borrow a commentary from a friend, and for about six weeks, I read a little bit of the book of Job every day, and then I would read the corresponding part in the commentary. And it was so helpful because the commentary gave me all sorts of different ways to understand these passages because, you know, it, all of the different ways it has been interpreted, right? There's so many layers of meaning in the scripture, and it, and it, and it sort of laid that out for me. 
And then it also helped me to connect the dots and, and understand the underlying message of this, of this book. And so reading the book of Job actually turned out not to be very depressing. It actually turned out to be healing. And by using a commentary, not only did it enlighten my reading of it, but it gave me like a guide to lead my way, a companion for my journey. I felt like I wasn't reading it alone. So there's my plug. You don't need to have a seminary degree, and you don't need to have a sermon to prepare to read a biblical commentary or dip into one. So let's wade into the waters here of original language just for a moment. Uh, I invite you to come with me on this journey. We're going to look at a word, one word that's very important in this passage. And it's a word that scholars make a pretty big deal about in most of the commentaries on 1 Thessalonians. It's the Greek word parousia. Okay, so the Greek word parousia is, is what we see in verse 15 when it says the Lord's return, the Lord's coming, the Lord's coming again. That's the, the word, that's where we see the word parousia, and it translates to arrival or presence. That's what it means, the Lord's arrival, the Lord's presence. But it turns out that the word parousia was more than just a dic- dictionary definition of arrival or presence. It was in ancient Rome, it was an event. It was, uh, and this is where things get really exciting with this passage, so pay, don't, don't miss this. In the ancient Roman world, the word parousia referred to the public ceremonial arrival of a ruling authority, such as a king or Caesar. So here's how a parousia worked. Lookouts would be stationed on the city walls. I don't know if they had binoculars back then, but that's what I'm picturing them with, right? Binoculars, they're scanning the horizon. They're looking for the first glimpse of the entourage of the king that was coming to visit, right? As soon as they saw that glimpse on the horizon, a call was sent out. A herald would announce the ruler's approach with a trumpet. Dignitaries, city officials, many people in the city would go out from the city gates, down the road to meet the, 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 the king, the visiting king or ruling authority, Caesar, to meet uh, the ruling authority and the whole entourage, they would honor them and then they would escort them back into the city and enter through the city gates with them. You see, an arriving ruler in ancient Rome didn't just come to the city gate and get welcomed at the gate. They would be lavishly greeted by a welcoming committee while they were still on the road. It kind of reminds me of when I was a kid. <laughs> Um, my sister and I would get so excited when my grandparents were coming from New York to New Hampshire to visit us for a week. And we were so excited that we would go out to the corner of our property where there was uh, a stop sign. Uh, and we would go out hours before their expected arrival, just in case they got there early. And we would, like, we would look at the, the, the place where the road comes over the hill about a quarter of a mile away. And every car that came over it, we would say, is that, is that them? Is that them? And we were looking for their silver gray station wagon. And when finally we saw their silver gray station wagon come over the hill, we jumped up and down. We were so excited. And then as that station wagon approached us, it would slow down. The windows would go down, the waving, the smiles. And they would drive extremely slowly just that last, like, Uh, acre length of our property as my sister and I would run alongside them on our property with them on the road paralleling them. And then as they pulled into the driveway, we would run up to the door so that we would be the first to greet them even before they opened the car door. Do you see 
what Paul is doing here when he's describing the coming of the Lord with the word parousia. Paul's not painting a picture of God's people meeting Christ in the air to spend eternity with him floating in the clouds. He's painting a picture of God's people leaving the city gates of the world and meeting Christ in the air like a vast welcoming committee, ready to escort him to the new earth where he will make his home with us forever. This is not a picture of some secret rapture where we escape earth forever and we never come back. No, this is a picture of our getting to honor Christ on that day by running alongside the car and being the first to greet him as he pulls in the driveway. Well, there's one more tool that I want to uh, look, at, look at with you. And it might be the most important of the tools. So if you only leave today with one tool, this is the tool. A Jesus hermeneutic. Hermeneutic is just a fancy word that means interpretive tool. You see, ultimately, the Bible as a whole functions to point us to Christ. And Christ makes that really clear himself. And so we always want to come back to Christ. Now, it's wonderful to think about all of the things that we've been thinking about, like what will it be like when our bodies are transformed and the dead are raised to life and we have this big family reunion in the air? At least that's what I'm picturing. But our understanding of these things It's just a shadow. It can only ever be a shadow on this side of eternity. We cannot fully picture them or understand them. And we would do well not to get overly caught up trying to. Because then we run the danger of becoming distracted from the main event. That is Christ himself. Christ now. Christ here. Christ in our life. Christ is our life. Christ is our light. He is our ultimate hope. And if we're found in him, we have eternal life. However, the particulars of that eternal life unfold. So let's ask us ourselves one more question about this passage. And that is, how does this passage point us to Christ? What does it reveal about Christ? Well, in the Roman world, the emperor, or Caesar, was believed to be divine. And Roman citizens were expected to pay homage to him. Essentially, they worshipped the emperor. This was known as the imperial cult. It was just part of what it meant to be uh, alive in the Roman Empire. But, as you can imagine, this was a bit of a problem for the Christians, right? Because their faith they found to be at odds with the imperial cult. In fact, many Christians were persecuted for their refusal to worship Caesar, Some were even martyred. And it's possible that the Thessalonians who had died, perhaps they had been martyred. Now, in this passage, Paul is reminding his readers that in the end, the Roman Empire, which has made life so very, very hard for uh, the Christians of Thessalonica, the Roman Empire doesn't have the last word. You see, by using the word parousia, a word that's usually used to describe the coming of Caesar, Uh, Paul is making a strong political statement here. Can you see that? 
He's using anti-imperial rhetoric. He's essentially saying Caesar isn't the one we worship. Jesus Christ is. Caesar isn't God. Jesus Christ is. We don't serve the Roman Empire. We serve God's eternal kingdom. The Roman Empire is just a shadow of the real empire, the empire of love, the eternal kingdom of God. Imagine how comforting that would have been for the Thessalonians who have suffered loss and persecution. Imagine how energizing that might have been to help them to keep going on. As we close today, uh, this passage, it brings up a lot of interesting and valuable questions to grapple with about the end times, doesn't it? And these are worth exploring. They're worth grappling with. But the most important question that this passage brings up is this. Who is Christ? And here's the answer that it supplies. Christ is the one who overcomes death. Christ is the one who holds the keys to resurrection life. Christ has the power to renew our dying bodies even our dead bodies. Christ will one day reverse the decay to which all creation is bound. Christ holds the future and all of eternity in his hand. Christ is coming again. He will inaugurate the new heavens and the new earth. And Christ has made a way for us to live with him and in him forever and ever in peace that never ends, with purpose that never runs out, in community that brings joy and meets our deepest needs, and in beauty of which this world is just a teaser. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Friends, this is the reality of God's love for you and for me. I'm going to invite up the band. And today, as we do every month, we're going to take communion. Um, And before we approach the communion table, I want to give us a few moments to sit with the truths that we've heard and read and to sit with a A scripture from the the book of John that I think speaks to, really holds all of this. Uh, I am the resurrection and the life. So as we prepare our hearts to receive communion, I just want to give us a minute or two to sit with some quiet music um, and this truth and to receive what it is that God has for each one of us to receive from his word this morning, to listen to the spirit tapping in our hearts Perhaps to respond if there is a response that you would like to give to God, whatever that is, in the freedom of love. So let's rest in the grace of this truth, and then I'll come back and we'll have communion. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gift of life, your broken body, your self-giving love, a place at the table, a place in the kingdom, a place in eternity, not because we deserved it, but because of who you are. We respond, O Lord. We open our hearts and our hands. We look for you. We long for you. Thank you that you are the resurrection and the life. Thank you that you are coming again. Amen. 
You're listening to the official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at www.wellchurchvt.com.